Welcome to Community Conversations, the podcast series from Crime Stoppers. I'm Richard Myron. In this series, we're taking a close look at the issue of knife crime, which has become a headline concern throughout the country. For this edition of Community Conversations, we're in London, which has become the capital of knife crime in the UK. The numbers of people affected by it are higher than in any other part of the country. I've been to an area of the city that's been in the news for all the wrong reasons, and here's what I saw and heard. This is the Kennington Park Road, a busy thoroughfare in South London, not very far, in fact, from central London. It sits in the London borough of Southwark. Now, Southwark has the second highest rate of fatalities from knife crime in London. Just here, not very far from where I'm standing, and I'm standing next to Kennington Park, a young man aged 18 years old was stabbed to death just the other week. And shockingly, he was the third person to be killed in this area in the space of just 18 months. We've come here to try and understand what's going on, the extent of the problem of knife crime in the capital. To help me understand... I'm here with Alexa Lucas, who's the London Regional Manager for Crime Stoppers. Alexa, what's going on? It's not an easy answer to give because there's a complex range of issues that are affecting knife crime in London. And we are at our highest um, with over 15,000 knife crime offences this year. So there are many different elements to this problem. So we've seen a desensitisation with younger people carrying knives. Maybe it's seen more as a a normality. There are issues around young people being exploited around county lines and they're carrying knives to protect themselves. We've had a lot of youth services closed down, taken away. A lot of communities are feeling maybe there's a lack of opportunity for them. So many, many different reasons, but we are seeing a, a huge increase. What's the effect of a killing upon a community? I can't begin to imagine how that must feel for family. In the community, it affects everyone. There's a ripple effect. So it will affect friends and teachers and shopkeepers and police officers who might be working in the area. For the family, obviously, it's, it's devastating and it's, it seems so senseless. It's such a kind of waste of a life. And I think that's the thing that I hear a lot of the time from mothers and families it's just so senseless it didn't have to happen it's just that split second that can change the whole family's life forever okay Alexa thank you very much so now we're going to carry on in this area in Kennington and we're going to meet someone else who works with young people on the issue of knife crime Anu Oladapo, you are Senior Fearless Outreach Worker for London. Now, just to clarify, Fearless is part of Crime Stoppers and you work with young people. So, we've just been hearing about what's going on in London. How do you combat that? I think it's it's really just challenging that narrative and I think that's why, for me, education is a primary approach because... 
for me, it's having those conversations with young people and asking them, well, why do you think that that's okay? And then probing them a bit further and hearing them say, well, if I'm not going to use it on anyone and it just makes me feel better, then why can't I have it there? And sort of getting them to realise that actually in carrying the knife, that means you're more likely to bring it out if you find yourself in, maybe it's even just a verbal disagreement. Knowing that it's there means that there is an increased propensity for you to bring it out. So one of the ways in which I sort of challenge that mindset with young people is actually getting them to realise how the situation can very easily turn around and how the presence of a knife on its own can escalate any given situation. We're in an area where there has been a lot of knife crime. There have been fatalities not very far from here. When something like that happens, aren't incidents like that of fatalities, aren't they kind of a wake-up call for young people? It is a wake-up call, but probably not in the sense that you would think. So it's not a wake-up call that leads to disarmament, but in a way it almost justifies the reason for carrying that weapon. When things like that happen in the community, a lot of people are, are tense. You know, maybe, maybe it's someone that you grew up with, someone that you played football with, someone that was very much a part of your life or someone you had an awareness of and knowing that that person no longer exists. And then, you know, in the aftermath of that, young people can think, well, that could that could happen to me. If it happened to him, then that could happen to me. And so for a lot of young people, there is, and I don't think we talk too much about this, but there is an effect that violence has on a particular community. And I don't think there is much recourse or just opportunities for young people to heal from that violence. You know, young people that, for example, lose brothers or sisters, aunties and uncles to knife crime, what resources exist for them to speak to someone and to heal and to get past that? Is there resentment? Is there a desire for revenge? Do they sort of fear their own personal safety? And what then all those feelings and emotions cause them to do. I don't think that's something we talk too much about. You know, when a community is affected by violence, the people that are in that community, what help and support are they given to really move beyond that? And I think not giving them that support can make people, in a way, take laws into their own hands. How do you bring any kind of normality back to a family, to a community, in the wake of of something like this? I think it's very, very difficult to say that normality can ever in a way be restored to a family that loses a member in such in such a brutal way i don't know if such families can resume life as as normal but i think the very best thing we can do is ensuring that you know if therapy is needed if counseling is needed you know engaging with members of the family on their own personal needs and also trying to ascertain their definition of justice. I think different victims want different things. For some families, it's just an apology. For some families, they want the question, they want answered why. You know, why did you target my son or my daughter? What what happened on that day? They just want the details. Justice looks takes on different forms for different victims and different people. So that question is very difficult to answer, I'm afraid. Anna, thank you very much indeed. So there we heard about how knife crime has become a frightening and growing feature of life in London. But in this podcast, we don't want to discuss just what has happened. We want to understand how to deal with the aftermath of these kind of incidents. Restorative justice is often talked about. And this is the idea of bringing the offender and the people, the victims, family members and others together. I'm joined by an audience here in South London and also by a panel who have a very distinct and personal perspective on this subject. First of all, I'm joined by Barry Mizzen. Barry has a charity called For Jimmy. It's named after his son, Jimmy, who was murdered in a violent incident 11 years ago. Barry's charity tries to bring about some form of restorative justice through forgiveness 
by talking to offenders and by talking to those who've also been, like him, the victims of crime. I'm also joined by Julie Clark, who is the Restorative Service Manager for Calm Mediation. Calm Mediation provides not just mediation, but also restorative justice. And finally this evening, Sophie Barton Hawkins. Sophie has been through the criminal justice system as an offender. And Sophie has also been through a program which aims to help offenders come to terms with the offences they might have committed and to help mediate some kind of solution and to bring them back, hopefully, into society. Barry, if I can start with you. We're talking about restorative justice and your charity stresses the notion of forgiveness. The strapline for our charity is forgiveness, peace and hope. Majority of my work now with my wife is travelling around the country, speaking in schools, sharing Jimmy's story. Our main purpose is there to try and help young people deal with the pain in their life, whatever the cause of that pain. So we use a very powerful story, if you like, to try and get people to look at their own issues in life. So when we start talking about forgiveness, I think it's so important that we realise forgiveness has been from a self-interest perspective. And we use Jimmy's story to try and get that across to the young people. As I say, it might not be a, a physical crime that's been enacted upon them. It could be words. It could be social media. So specifically, we use Jimmy's story and those words, forgiveness, peace and hope, to try and help young people manage the pain in their lives. And we do that through the story of what happened to our son. I do say to them that I forgive the person who killed our son. And what do I mean by that? And we have a discussion on the top of that. To me, forgiveness does not mean that what you've done doesn't matter. Let's move on. To me, forgiveness is I don't want to do to you what you did to me, and I don't do it for you, I do it for me. And that's the beginnings of everything that we now do. So that's how it fits in. I think specifically when it comes to restorative justice, there there are three elements here about restorative justice and what does it actually do? And I think, A, it's got to, or does it, reduce offending? Does it reduce Reoffending, but does it also enable victims to cope and recover from what has actually happened to them? So I think there's an important question there that I hope to hear more views on this. Does it actually work along those three strands? But it's so important that when we start talking about forgiveness, what do we actually mean by that? And for me personally, it's the self-interest side of it. I do this for me. I don't do it for the, the person who killed my son. I have no idea what that person's views are. And at this stage in time, it doesn't matter to me what that person's views or thoughts are. Maybe that's something for the future we'll see. Julie, Barry spoke there about what he hopes is the effect of restorative justice. You deal with also with the victims of crimes. Does it have a practical effect? Does it restore something? Does it bring justice? Yes, absolutely, I would say. Very similar perspective in that we're a victim-led service. So the aim of the restorative justice process is to enable victims to cope and recover from the effects of crime. And that's certainly the feedback that we get, that 85% of victims who take part in the restorative justice process are satisfied with the outcome. So generally what happens is the victims fall into kind of two categories. There's either something that they want to tell the offender or that there's something that they want to ask of the offender. And that could be anything that will assist them in coping and recovering from crime. It could be something that makes them feel safer. They might want to ask the offender, were you watching me, for instance? And the answer that they get from that question will help them to feel safer and less anxious in the future, which in turn will help them in coping and recovering from crime. So it's that kind of dialogue that needs to be happening for the victim to feel like they're able to move forward. And it's something that can't be got from the criminal justice system. Their voice being heard and that two-way dialogue is something that they can't get from any other service provider. Sophie, and we've heard about 
the importance of restorative justice for victims, that you were an offender. What role does restorative justice have to play from the perspective of the offender? From what I've seen and from my story personally, it has a huge role to play. They can put us in prison, but unless we're being given the courses to access, such as restorative justice program that I did with Sycamore Tree, it's very hard for you to come to terms with what you've done. The key thing that I learned was the ripple effect. And although there may be one direct victim, actually there are far more victims of your crime because of the people that are around them that also fall victim to what you've done. It was such a hugely powerful tool to have in prison and I think it should be accessible to everybody. Can you just talk us through the process that you underwent? For me, I was full of a lot of self-hate. I was in prison for three years in prison and then three years in the community. And for the first 18 months, I think it's fair to say that I was just chaotic. I was very hard to control in the prison system. I had been labelled as the worst female offender in the prison state at that time. There's a lot of self-harm, a lot of anger. And for me, coming to terms with what I did really did start within the sycamore tree course where we had people come in in my case it was barry and they spoke about being able to forgive and not move on from what happened but live alongside what happened and that was huge for me because i thought if they can do that then maybe there is a chance for me in society and i had just felt hopeless up until that point and it was restoring that hope and allow myself to see some form of progress that I could go through to become a meaningful member of society and to let go of all's anger inside myself. Barry, listen to that. What's your reaction to hearing what Sophie's just said? Well, it's quite impactful, isn't it? Uh, thank you for that. Listen, I'd just like to clear a point up. We've heard this term cope and recover at the beginning of this, uh, this talk, and it's very much a government thing. When the government's come out, they want to change things within this sector, whatever they try and do. And part of their idea of helping victims is helping cope and recover. What I take of you is you don't recover from some things. To the, you don't go back to where you were. To me, I'd like to look upon recover as we will take a book and we'll take that cover off and put a new cover on. And I think that can apply to us and I think it can apply to perpetrators, whatever the, the situations might be. How do we use the system to cope and recover to enable people to lead a different life or manage the new reality in their life? I want to call upon one of the people here in the audience Good evening, Mick Duffy. I'm from Crime Stoppers. My question is, restorative justice, what type of offences should this be used for? And are there offences that it's not suitable for? What's the upper threshold? There you have it. Aren't some crimes so terrible that we see the, the taking of a life of a teenager that you can't, in a way, bring justice to that? I think it's an interesting point, isn't it? In its simplest sense, restorative justice... As an example, you come and burn my garden shed down, you buy me another garden shed and we're restored. But how does that fit in when you get to losing a loved one? How can you actually approach that? Part of my work over the years has been working with the National Homicide Service, helped setting up a peer support network of people bereaved by homicide. And I remember sharing this with someone from the north of the country. He had lost a loved one and he said two of his friends up there had also gone through the same story the same tragedy and part of their course was to then meet with the perpetrator and they came away feeling that the perpetrator was only doing it to allow themselves to look good as far as their so-called rehabilitation goes we tend to take this view that restorative justice will solve everything so i think there are limits to it i think it's very good from one perspective but does it apply to everything i personally don't know and if it then comes to me personally would i benefit from meeting the person who killed my son 
or would he benefit? I suppose in the end, why would I want to do that? Why would he want to do that? So I'm not saying there's not a conversation to be had there, but it's certainly not the first conversation when it comes to homicide. Julie, is there in a way a point where restorative justice cannot be achieved? By crime category, theoretically speaking, no, because the criteria for the restorative justice process to take place is that both parties are willing and that the offender takes accountability for some of the harm that's caused. And if we're starting from a point of there, then we can definitely move forward with the restorative justice. We have really robust risk assessments ongoing that take place throughout the whole of the process. So there may be certain risks identified that would mean that restorative justice in this case would not be appropriate or would not be safe in order to progress. But that wouldn't be based on crime category. That would be based on the individual circumstances of the case. Okay. In your direct experience, in the kind of cases that you have dealt with, can you give us an example of where you have found it most difficult to embark on this process of of restorative justice? Probably the most difficult is cases of domestic abuse because of the whole different set of risks that come with abusive relationships, especially where there's coercive control. For example, we do not take offender-initiated referrals where domestic abuse is concerned. We will only accept victim-initiated referrals. And only then, once they've passed the initial risk assessment and the ongoing risk assessments, would we be able to proceed in a way that was safe. Sophie, from the perspective of the offender, I mean, you go into prisons and you now talk to to offenders who are going to be released and so on. Do you think that there are people that are just not suitable to embark on this process? I think those who are not taking responsibility for actions and the people who maintain that they aren't guilty, then it wouldn't be suitable because there does have to be a certain level of accountability in order to be able to apply it to your own offence. In regards to offence categories, I think it should be offered to everybody regardless of offence. People will go along to the course to you know, tick the box for offender managers. However, the information being delivered, they can still then utilise later in their life and continue applying what they've learnt, even if they can't apply it right there. Okay. I'd like to actually throw this question of, can restorative justice operate in all circumstances? So we have a point there. My name is Rahul Bhatt. I am a former offender. I went to jail for GBH and I had a fight and I crushed a man's skull with, with a punch. Does restorative justice work for all cases as a blanket cover? Absolutely not. I went through the process and I ticked every single box to get out of jail pretty fast. And as well so, as so many, you're saying you walked through it in a way deliberately to, to get out of jail at the time? Many, many of us did because I didn't find my rehabilitation through the system or any of the courses that were presented to me. What changed me was when I was the Muslim rep for the wing, my duty was to bring out the food during Ramadan and feed the inmates that were fasting and opening their fast. And particularly in one circumstance where a prison officer was escorting me through that process, advised me that I had to go back to my so he can do another count he banged me up and um, after about 20 minutes I'm pressing the button and the prison is going crazy right now and um, when I pressed the button and the prison officer came with another officer I spoke to him and I said well how come you're not letting me out the cell to feed everyone you know the food is here it's in my cell and he goes no no I've gone around and told all the prisoners that you've locked yourself in the cell with the food and that's the restorative justice that I got from the criminal justice system. And that changed my life. And I'll never forget his face, his name or anything about him. And because a lot of prisoners were angry and they didn't get their food and they were banging that door. 
I went to jail for GBH, so I was a big boy inside prison. Had I been anyone else, I would have been eaten alive. Those young people that are coming out and what they're exposed to and the lives that they have to live, restorative justice is very, very much far in the back of their mind because they're thinking of survival. Rahil, thank you very much. Sophie, you wanted to, to say something, but we heard from there from Rahil about basically how he felt the criminal justice system wasn't really about justice. And in fact, it fed grievance. For me, I, I found that a lot of the stuff that was government-led, government-led initiatives in prisons didn't really work. It was more to do with the charities that were in the prisons providing alternative support, such as Sycamore Tree Run by Prison Fellowship, that they were the ones that were making the difference. And, you know, charities got limited pots of money and so they can only deliver a certain amount of courses per year in a certain amount of prisons. But to get onto that course... Not only do you have to tell your offender manager you want to do it, you then have to go through a vetting process with the team in the prison. They ask you questions about why you want to do it. And we can offer these courses to people, but if they're not in the place to take them, they're not going to take them. And it's that old saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Rehabilitation in prison starts in your own mind, I think. The only person who can change their own behaviour and their own actions and the way that they respond to events is the individual who's responding to them. Lorraine, could you just introduce yourself, please? You ha- you raised your hand. You wanted to make yeah, a point. I'm Pastor Lorraine Jones. I'm the founder of Dwayne Simpson Foundation, which has been founded out of a result of my son that was killed through knife crime in 2014. How old was your son? He was 20. I believe that restorative justice, it's a very good tool, but it depends on how it's delivered. And I say that because there's a lot of traumatic violent cases that are being done where young people are being stabbed multiple times in the presence of other young people. How do they cope with that? Is there a service that can reach out to them as soon as at the scene of the crime? Because now I campaign a lot in supporting young people and families which are victims like myself. And I go to scenes and I see lots of young people that have they're, they're seeing the dead body they're seeing the wounds before the police even get there to put them in a body bag Lorraine thank you very much when we talk about restorative justice and when we talk about victims obviously we have the victims the family members and the person who's been directly hurt by the crime but also as Lorraine said there there are kind of the ripples outwards people who've witnessed are they also the victims let me put this to you Julie they are victims and there are a number of support services like Victim Support who will offer support to people who have witnessed serious and violent crimes. Unfortunately, restorative justice can't cover everything. We're here for a specific purpose. But one of the things that we try to do in the services, we make partnerships with lots of other support services that are around across the capital. We will make referrals. We will signpost people on. We will make onward referrals and we will try to make sure that people are getting the support that they need. We're restricted in the terms of we are a consent-based service so we have to have consent to contact somebody to offer them any kind of restorative justice or any kind of onward referral that they might need so anybody who comes into contact with us where we have consent to have those conversations we will be looking at all their needs we'll be looking at needs of other people who might contact us who might not have been directly involved in the offence but might have been affected and try to make sure that everybody's getting the support that they need by utilising the wealth of services that are across London in all of the different boroughs because not everybody can specialise in everything but we can make sure that people get access to services that they need.
I'm going to move on to the next question. I'm Sarah Mortaboys and um, I look after an organisation called Delalio Rugby Works and we work with young people 14 to 19 who are most at risk of falling out of education, employment and training. And the question that I've got, just to give a bit of context to it, I was recently in a pupil referral unit in a city, Birmingham, working with a group of young people who are in year 11, who are being exposed to some of the most serious violence, drug related crime. And to take the point of the lady earlier, they are witnessing things that we can only cannot believe and these are young people that are right on the edge of falling into custodial care how do we use the lessons that we might have from restorative justice to help inform a really strong and robust prevention strategy to stop them getting to the point where they need significant help when they find themselves in prison it's a really good point does restorative justice have a role to play in prevention Julie, can I come to you first? I would say absolutely yes, because restorative justice is about a restorative approach. And we are beginning to see that restorative approaches are starting to be used in schools and they're starting to use the restorative approach in workplaces and also in prisons as well. So the bottom line message of restorative justice is that talking works. And I think that one of the things that's missing from our society is the lack of empathy and the lack of being able to be accountable and think about the consequences of our actions and how that affects everybody around us. It doesn't just start in organisations like car mediation. It needs to be instilled in our homes, in our communities, in our schools, in our workplaces. And I'll just give you an example with offenders. You will find that offenders, and we'll talk low level, and just to give an example, an offender feels like they burgled number 13. That's all it is to them until they go through the restorative justice process. And then they understand that they didn't burgle number 13. They had a huge impact on the person who lives at number 13 and their family members and their children. It may be that they weren't able to go to work. It might have had a financial impact on them. So it's about humanising the experiences that we're having with crime. Sophie Barton-Hawkins, from the offender's perspective, can restorative justice do anything vis-a-vis prevention if someone's going to offend? I think that a lot of people end up in prison with more serious offences because they've been doing lesser offences. So if restorative justice did get put into place sooner, then potentially they may be able to take what they've learned and move forward and stop offending. So definitely, it's definitely got a place at a much earlier level than being in prison. Barry? I think overall, we're trying to solve things far too late. We're trying to solve things when people are a lot older, rather than trying to get to the root of things. Over the years, myself and my wife have visited prisons, we've heard stories, and it's been a huge learning curve for us. And one in particular was uh, a young offenders in, in Staffordshire, all lifers, most in for murder, and one young lad shared his story. And he said, I did to somebody what person did to your son, I killed somebody, I am so sorry. So much remorse. He said, I keep writing letters to send to the family. I can't send them. So I said, write your letter and send it to us. And this was a huge learning curve. There was no points in it for him. He's still in prison now as far as I'm aware. But he shared his life. And for us, this was an awakening that these things don't just happen when someone gets to 17, 18, 19. And this is not a blanket courage, but generally, these are learned experiences. It's what a young person's gone through as they've grown up. So I I think if we can just change our thoughts about what actually is going on here you know, and could something have been done and absolutely something could have been done but years before we are trying to do things nowadays. Barry thank you I think we have a point over here. Christian Douglas from Unique Talent we're a gang specialist company working with um, young kids around the cusp of getting involved with gangs 
It's an ex-offender-led charity. It's run by people who are from the community. Our biggest frustration is we deliver great services. We're going in there and we're doing great stuff. But 18 months down the line, two years down the line, the funding cuts. I've heard government members say for themselves, this is a national emergency. When children are dying in our streets, this is a national emergency. These young people we're working with have services dipping in and out of their life. I had services when I was a youngster dipping in and out of my life and they're fed up of services coming to them saying, no, we can no longer support you. We can't help you. How do we lobby and get government to take this really serious? I'm curious, Christian, do you think that that restorative justice such as we've been talking about, is that relevant to what you do? I actually went through the the Sycamore Tree course myself and it was a good course. (laughs) In prison, you either go to mosque or you go church because of my Pentecostal roots, I decided to go church. And some reason I ended up on the Sycamore Tree course. <laughs> and so I'll be totally honest with you, when I went in that course, they told me I can get a free visit at the end. I was like, I'm, I'm getting through that process. <laughs> and by the end of it, I was sobbing and crying. I was like, Rah! I didn't even realise the impact. And the guy he threw the stone in the bucket and it splashed a whole load of people. And I was like, Rah, this is serious. And it actually woke me up. I actually agree with you. Everyone by accident or by force needs to go through that process. But it's the case is how do we ramp this up? Julie, you, you, Christian, there was talking about it's funding. Government has a role to play here. Is that what lies at the root of this? That, you know, we need the government, the authorities, government agencies to step in and do more and include restorative justice and whatever they do uh, amongst other things. Is that it? To put it bluntly, isn't that the problem with everything that's wrong with this country? It's that the funding is not there and that the funding streams change and the trends change. I personally have worked in many different fields, working with different groups of vulnerable people, and my job takes me wherever the the local trend is for that government or those few years, and then it will change and the money will go to somewhere else. And I think that you're right, there does need to be some consistency, and we need to be given the opportunity for longer-term work so that we can evidence that it works. It's very difficult to evidence that a service works over two years. We need five years. We need six years. We need to be able to prove those outcomes. We need to be able to monitor and evaluate and prove that what we're doing works. And we need to be given the opportunity to do that. Anthony, I just saw you shaking your head there. It's not about government money. You can't throw money at government money, this problem. It's about money that exists in society that is corporate funding that is there. Big companies are making billions of money. And a 1.1% of that income, if it came into social projects, the government would have to worry about money. We keep asking for the government, put that hand out. It's not coming and it won't come. Now, I just want to try to draw things to a close. Where we are at the moment, we are seeing, as we've heard, a terrible rise in the number of of young people who are dying as a consequence of of knife crime. What can restorative justice say about this moment, here and now, Barry Mizzen? I wonder if we need to take something positive from what we've done this evening. And I don't want to sound negative, if you like, but over the years, the issue of funding always comes up, doesn't matter what it is. And maybe what we've heard tonight from Anthony, maybe there's a different way of looking at these things. I believe there is so much good work going out in, in the community in various areas. And we've got people here tonight who do such great work. How about take this range of podcasts and say, let's look at this from a different perspective. Don't expect the government to solve it. Don't expect the police to solve it. For each and every one of us to say, what can I personally do to make the changes? And I feel that will be a positive outcome. So it's the community. We Let's not look to other people. Let's I, look to I, ourselves. I totally our believe this. We, we have the power to create the type of communities we all want to live in. And what are you prepared to do about it is our question. Well, what am I prepared to do about it? Julie Clark. What does restorative justice, what can it do at this moment? 
It can give victims the answers that they need in able to be in order to move forward. It benefits offenders, as we've heard. It has to benefit the offender in order for it to be impactful for the victim. And if that's all it does, if it just enables one person to be able to move forward instead of being stuck in the moment where they are, where they're experiencing that crime over and over again, and it's having a huge impact on their life. And if we're able to help a victim to move forward from that place, maybe not into recovery, as you said, but to find a new normal, uh, whatever that may be for them, whatever that looks like, then it's most definitely beneficial. Sophie? I think we need to make sure that any intervention we put in place has to be meaningful and purposeful. And I think restorative justice is that and is proven to be that. We need to look at it from a victim point of view as well as an offender point of view. And we need to allow the victim to deal with what's happened with them and the offender to also deal with what they've caused and what they've created. And if we can do that, then that there may only be one victim from that offender as opposed to them not going through restorative justice and continuing to create further victims moving forward. So meaningful interventions are what's definitely needed in restorative justice. I'd like to thank all our panellists, Barry Mizzen, Sophie Barton-Hawkins, Judy Clark. I'd also like to thank very much all of you who are here tonight. It's a huge subject and we all recognise, I think, in this room the absolute importance of it. This podcast was presented by me, Richard Myron, from Earshot Strategies and was produced by Anouk Mie. Crime Stoppers is an independent charity that gives people the power to speak up to stop crime 100% anonymously. If you have information on a crime, you can contact Crime Stoppers by phone and online 24-7, 365 days a year. Just call 0800 555 111 or visit crimestoppers-uk.org.